Well, good morning. In case this is your first time with us this morning, or maybe you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, we have started a new series, and we're in the midst of it, a series entitled Vexed. Vexed. And this series has been challenging our way of thinking. Uh, personally, I've really enjoyed this series. I've, I've found it very, very thought-provoking. Uh, I think Pastor Brian has done an amazing job bringing up and questioning some of the conventional definitions that we look to for a meaningful life. But to be completely frank, I've also found this series incredibly depressing. <laughs> I mean, 90% of the sermon in the passage is just doom and gloom. I mean, I even felt myself this week feeling a little depressed as I was studying this passage and trying to, you know, work it out. But it's challenging. As I was preparing uh, this sermon, I think I wore the tread off my shoes as I was pacing back and forth in my office. There's actually a, a rut in my carpet now where you can, you can see where I was walking. Um, this, question, this question of a meaningful life is challenging. Because we are typically defining a meaningful life in 2017 in ways that keep coming up short. And we keep looking for a meaningful life, a happy life, the good life, in ways that keep turning out to be hollow, empty. It seems like living the dream oftentimes just turns out to be a pipe dream. <laughs> One of our fundamental core beliefs about today's world, about the good life, is, that, is our belief that if we just had enough education, enough good education, and lots of pleasure, lots of fun, and work that was more meaningful, then we would be happy. We would be happy, finally. Uh, then we would have nothing to complain about. And we tend to overtly tell, us, uh, tell ourselves this, uh, whether you look at a Facebook post or you think about the ads that we consume or the things that we buy or the things that we look to. We tend to overtly tell ourselves this and everyone else. Or we tend to quietly comfort ourselves with it when things aren't going so well. When things didn't turn out the way that we want them, we tend to tell ourselves, you know, if I only really understood that, or if I really only had that, or if I only worked over there, then I would be satisfied. I would be happy. In fact, we would have nothing to complain about. Even as Christians, we've actually tended to buy into this lie that uh, good work and lots of education and some good old-fashioned R&R time is what the good life looks like, and looks like, and we spiritualize it by saying that if you have that, then you have nothing to complain about. You've got the good life. Sometimes we hear an echo of this uh, when we come off of a missions trip. I used to be a, a youth pastor. I've taken lots of missions trips and so forth. And a common line that a student will make coming off of a missions trip is something along the lines of, you know, I've just got it so good. I've got so much stuff. I've got lots of public school education. And I've, I've got opportunities. I've got the good life. I've got nothing to complain about. And if somebody, you know, didn't have that, well, then they have something to complain about. Then they deserve some pity. It's our definition of a good life. 
The problem in our thinking begins to come out, though. I was in a church, a different church, a, a couple of years back. I was standing in a church lobby, and I was having a conversation with somebody. Um, and I dropped this line. I just, you know, talked about something that wasn't going all that great. And the guy I was talking with was a, a good guy. Uh, I know him. He's a good guy. Got a great heart. Um, he's a hardworking guy. Owns his own business. And he's one of those guys that likes to share things with you. Some of you know those people. Uh, anyways, he took this as his springboard to launch off and share with me about how good of a life we have and about how we have no reason to complain and about how since we live in America, we have so much stuff and so much freedom that we've got it good. In fact, we've got it so good, we don't even know how good we have it that we take it for granted. And really, we have absolutely nothing to complain about. And as he was, he was going, I couldn't help looking at the man who was standing next to him. A man who had just buried his mother the day before. See, the problem with our good life thinking, even an unselfish view of it, even if we had all that we wanted, it comes up short. Because in the end, death takes it all away. Death is a genuine problem, and frankly, it's worth complaining about. No matter who you are, no matter how much you have, death eventually shows up and robs the good life of everything. For those of us seeking a life that's a pleasure cruise, it's a party killer. For those of us who are trying to outrun the competition in business, it's a dead end, and for those of us seeking a deeper and deeper understanding, it's rock bottom. It was Woody Allen who once said, I don't want to attain immortality through my work. I want to attain immortality by not dying. Simple, but incredibly true, right? So true. As it turns out, the good life, as we tend to define it, no matter how good or how not good, always comes up short. It's always hollow. It's always empty. And it's why we can see at times a glimmer of somebody else who doesn't have the good life has satisfaction, has genuine happiness, and yet their life doesn't fit with the definition that we think of. And it mystifies us. And so the haunting question that finds you and me who are trying to run a race and outrun the competition to achieve the good life that finds you and me in the middle of the night is so what? Why care? Why do you care so much? Because it won't last, right? Our questions about the good life that we're pursuing quickly become if my efforts are worthless because of death in the end, why bother starting? Why bother starting? If my efforts are worthless in the end, why bother starting? And we may not think that maybe with pleasure as much as we especially think that when it comes to work <laughs> and when it comes to wisdom, education, understanding. If I'm just going to die and be forgotten, why bother, right, is a sentiment that sometimes we hear. The word that describes this question best is the word despair. Despair. And at least from time to time, you and I feel it. It can lead us, of course, as far as suicide or just as far as a bad night's sleep. 
But at one point or another, I guarantee you, it'll find you. It'll come asking questions. Because death is inescapable and it always shows up asking our quest for the happy life. Why do you bother? Why do you persist? And so this morning, I want to show us a passage of Scripture that takes up this tough question and offers the results of our attempts to create the good life. And I think from a very unexpected angle this morning, it offers us both help and hope. Genuine, authentic help for one of the most vexing problems of our life. And we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Uh, Ecclesiastes is one of the ultimate classic works, and even if you're somebody who's still unsure about what you believe about God, I encourage you to consider it. It's a, a book that has shaped the philosophical thought of many over years, and I believe it's worth your consideration. You might be surprised by it. And in our series that we're going uh, through part of this book, we've just finished up the first part of an experiment to see if there's meaning to be found in the world, in life, if it's really worth all this effort. And so we pick things up in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, so I turned, right, from the other experiment to consider wisdom and madness and folly. So the other experiment that he was doing was with pleasure through laughter, wine, sex, and accomplishment as a means to a meaningful life. And so he, now he turns to consider wisdom. And he promises to leave no stone unturned, which is why he says, For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What he's saying here is that common sense, just practically speaking, common sense is better than nonsense. But he goes on, and he says, And yet I perceive that the same event, death, happens to all of them. So I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. And then he asks this question that I'm sure we've all asked ourselves, Why then have I been so very wise? Right? I was asking myself the question that just, just the other day. Well, John, why have you been so very wise in your life? Just... Yeah, that's... I haven't asked that question lately. So I said in my heart that this is also vanity. It's worthless. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the fool, how the wise dies just like the fool. Why bother? So I hated life, despair, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all that is vanity and striving after the wind. It's absurd. It's absurd. It was Plato who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. But this passage asks us another question. What if the examined life turns out to be a dud as well? What then? What then? Many of us, myself included, just want to create a good life that feels meaningful and like the author here, we start down a path, and we quickly begin to realize that some things just don't work very well for what I want to achieve. 
And if I want to, you know, manage my life better, if I want to manage my work better, then some things are, are going to be better for that. They're going to be better for us and for those around us. And so we invest our time in reading books. You know, books like uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? Or we read articles like Eight Ways to Be a Better Mom, to Be a Better Parent, Right? We invest our time in educating ourselves because we see the practical outcome of it. We see the benefits of living smarter, not harder. But rarely, if ever, <laughs> do we consider the value in the long run. I mean, in this case, the really long run, like the author is putting forward in the text I mean, after all, we have enough on our plates managing our day today. Why bother thinking about what happens after we die? I mean, that's, that's somebody else's problem then, right? We've done our part. We pass it on. It's somebody else's problem to fix, isn't it? But the author, uh, who's acting very similar to a philosophy professor here, he is bringing up and showing us that even if you are carefully living your life in a precise direction, it still ends. It still ends. One day, it still ends. So why bother? And if the wise person is going to die and your work is going to go on to somebody else, eventually it's going to go down the tubes and be forgotten. So why bother? It's an incredibly fair question, isn't it? When we look at it in that light. Remember the example from Pastor Brian that he gave during the first week. He gave the example that if you're on a ship that's sinking and the captain runs up to you and he says, hey, the boiler's about to explode. It's gonna sink the ship even faster. We're gonna go down all of two minutes faster unless we fix that bo boiler right now. So come on. Let's get in there, you and me, right now. Let's go. We're going to fix this thing. What would our response be? Why? <laughs> What's the point? If there's no difference in the end, why bother? If our efforts are worthless in the end, why bother starting? It's pointless. The picture in verse 17 at the end of it captures this horrible situation perfectly. As it says... So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. The picture is of a vapor. The picture is trying to catch a vapor. Even if you were somehow able to catch it, why bother? It's absurd. And unfortunately for us, the professor isn't finished yet. <laughs> he goes on. He, he, he goes on and on and on. But he goes on here in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, my work, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and my, used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. It's absurd. It's trying to catch vapors. So I turned about and gave my heart up to, up to what? Despair. Over all my toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled, who has worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil, who didn't work for it. This also is vanity. It's absurd. 
It's a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. We know that feeling, don't we? Of our heart not resting in the night. If my efforts are worthless in the end, why bother to start? I don't know about you, but I finished reading this passage and studying this passage this week. And I began to feel as if I had, I had been painted into a corner. I began to feel tired by it. Like I had tumbled down into a dark hole from where there was no coming back. Friends, that's exactly where we are. That's exactly where we are. In this author's view, in this writer's view here about a world under the sun, a world like John Lennon's classic song, imagine, imagine no heaven above us, imagine no hell below us, above us only sky. A world that has nothing. A world in that mindset. But instead of peace like John Lennon saw, the professor forecasts sorrow. Death, he would observe, has thwarted our attempts at happiness and at having a truly, ultimately meaningful life that isn't just gasping for vapors. The result of the tests is despair. There's no point. If that's it, there's not much left to do. See, in answer to our question, if my efforts are worthless in the end, why bother starting? Why bother, especially with wisdom and work, if it's absurd and worthless? The answer is, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. If this life that you and I see around us, as the author four times calls it, life under the sun, if this visible world is it, then it's worthless. It's absurd. But even here, the author, as we're about to see, has to start looking up. Start recognizing God, if there's to be any hope, any value. As he we read this passage in Ecclesiastes in the midst of the broader theme of Scripture. What we begin to see here is that God's mercy is found in our absurdities. God's mercy is found in our absurdity. Friends, this is actually really good news. <laughs> there is a divine mercy in the fact that this life can't quite make sense and never fully satisfies us. Why is that merciful? Because as C.S. Lewis puts it, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The fact that I cannot truly be satisfied by wisdom and work is a testimony to me and you of the need for something more. That I was made for something more. And the fact that death comes in and really takes the starch out of our hope only serves to underscore the truth that the professor goes on in chapter 3 to state that God has put eternity into man's heart. This is why time that leads to death makes life so absurd for us. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. As Sheldon Von Aachen puts it in his book, A Severe Mercy, which includes a correspondence between him and the other man I just quoted, C.S. Lewis, who writes in here, if indeed we all have a kind of appetite for eternity, 
We have allowed ourselves to be caught up in a society that frustrates our longings at every turn. Half of our inventions are advertised to save time, the washing machine, the fast car, the jet flight, but for what? Never were people more harried by time, by watches, by buzzers, by time clocks, by precise schedules, by the beginning of a program, by the beginning of a service, I would put in there. No other civilization of the past is ever so harried by time. And yet, why not? Time is our natural environment. We live in time as we live in the air we breathe. And we love the air. How strange it is that we cannot love time. It spoils our loveliest moments. Nothing quite comes up to expectations because of it. We alone, animals, so far as we can see, are unaware of time, untroubled. Time is their natural environment. Why do we sense that it's not ours? C.S. Lewis, in his second letter to me at Oxford, asked how it was that I, as a product of a materialistic universe, was not at home here. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been, or would not always be, purely aquatic creatures? Then if we complain of time and take such joy in seemingly timeless moments, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We're always amazed at how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone. We cry, where has the time gone? We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof, or at least a powerful suggestion, that eternity exists and is our home. Our home. There is mercy from God in life's absurdities. There's mercy. And that despair is not their only result. They masterfully point us back to our desperate need for God himself. Blew my mind. Blew my mind this week. God's mercy then has used life's absurdities to thwart our attempts to find satisfaction in a life outside of him. That actually hating life without God's presence and the gift of eternal life is in a sense very biblical. I remember when I first started to just realize a sliver of this truth. I was nowhere near really understanding, but a sliver of this truth. For, um, for years, I would have these moments, like all of us do, where I would hit some really disappointing situation. And I would, uh, I noticed that the, I had this phrase that started to escape my mouth. And the phrase was, I hate my life. I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever said that. Um, but it started to escape my mouth, and I began to wonder, is that healthy? I mean, it sounds like something that a, a psychology professor would be having a field day with, right? But as I uh, began to, you know, say it more and more, I just began to forget about that question and moved on with life. Uh, and in my first years of college, I was stuck in a car with my older brothers, two of them. And if you have older brothers, you're well aware of the pain that they can be sometimes, and uh, they were giving me a hard time in the car, and I was not in the mood for it. And so, because I didn't want to make the situation worse, I took out my phone, and I started writing something down in it. 
Uh, you've heard of, you know, writing down like an email in response to that nasty gram that you got, you know, that blazing email that you're supposed to delete and not send, you know, similar to that. Anyway, so I'm writing this down in my phone, and I write down those words, I hate my life. And I was looking at those, those words and thinking about them, and as I stared at them, they began to take on new meaning. I realized that it's kind of true, you know, I, I don't really like what's happening in this moment. But as I continued to think about it, they took on new meaning. That it was, it was okay to be disappointed, but because I knew as a follower of Jesus Christ, inherently as a follower of Jesus Christ, the secret of this text, that because this isn't the end, as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is as bad as it gets. The absurdity and pain of life, in the end, serves a purpose in God's mercy to point me back to my true hope. That heaven is my home, and Christ is my life. That as the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is only gain. The mercy of God is indeed found in our absurdities. In the fact that Jesus himself said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In the end, God's mercy triumphs over death. Our problem is, is that we're still asking the question, is that so? Is that so? Truth be told, even after a sermon like this, we're still not entirely convinced that pleasure, education, work, isn't really where the good life is found. We're not so sure that this is all absurd. And left on our own, we'll pursue some version of these three things until our deathbed. But friends, if we took stock of our life in the fulfillment that we got in this world, I wonder if it wouldn't be so much that we don't already realize the truth of this passage as much as we wonder, I would wonder if we would have the guts to admit it, to repent, and to come back to Christ. To repent for going to everything and everyone else first, looking for fulfillment before coming to him. Would we? Maybe the better question this morning is do we? If not, we're left with simply striving for more and more. If not, we're left chasing the wind. But if we repent, life is at the door. This is why the author goes on to say in verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And this also I saw is from the hand of God. Note the next observation here. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The truly good life. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But the sinner is given the, business, the unhappy business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. And almost as if you could see him 
Pitcher shrugging his shoulders and walking off, he said, this is also is vanity and striving after wind. But see, it's only when we've come to the point of hating our life, a life without God, in the prior verses, that we can embrace God's mercy and then enjoy eating and drinking and our work without feeling like we have to have more and more and more to satisfy an unquenchable need. It's only there that we can embrace our desire for more and still simply enjoy what's here because we know that this is not as good as it gets. It's that we're able to know then that when we're at our highest point, when we have made that deal and finished that building and scored that great date for Friday night, when we are at our high and when we are at our low, when we lost our job, we're in the van with the screaming kids and we're on our way to our funeral, that in both situations we are able to know that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's a game changer for our hope and for our contentment. And if we've come to see the gift of God's mercy and the absurdity of this life, what do we do with it? What do we start to do at least? How do we embrace the mercy of God or at least begin on some kind of route of this? Well, I want to encourage you to consider embracing God's mercy this week by answering one of two questions. I encourage you to write them down. There's a myriad of things that we could say. I was really prayerful about this part of the sermon. I felt like there was a million directions, a million applications that I could give you. But I felt like these two questions were where I wanted us to land. First, if you're a Christian, around the lunch table today, answer this question. What is one thing that you really wanted, but God thwarted out of his mercy? And how did it bring you closer to himself. What is one thing that you really wanted, but God out of his mercy thwarted and brought you closer to himself? Share that story. And then, just like in the text, I encourage you to genuinely enjoy with thanksgiving, without complaining, enjoy whatever it is that God has given you. Ask the question, answer it, and enjoy. Or, if you're someone who's still trying to figure out what you believe about God, I want you to consider this one question. What do you make of the desires you have that can never seem to be fulfilled? What do you make of the desires you have, those deeper desires that you have that can never seem to be fulfilled? How do you understand those moments of emptiness? I just invite you to consider that question of whether or not it has any implications then for your life. Because after all, what if the realization of life's absurdities, <laughs> and yet all the effort that we pour into them, really did serve as an example of God's mercy? What if they were meant to drive us back to himself? What if all the craziness of this life was meant to point us back to God? What if? You know, as I considered this question myself, and I pictured us sitting around the table today, for many of us celebrating Father's Day, for some of us not, and that's okay. But as I pictured us, I, I, I know that many of us can look back, and we can see how God, in his mercy, thwarted so many of our attempts to arrange our own happy little life without him. 
and how he in his mercy messed up our plans on purpose or used the brokenness that was in our lives to draw us closer to himself and to teach us to enjoy today. To enjoy today. To think of the houses that we tried to buy, the, that relationship that wasn't the one, the jobs that didn't work out. And now sitting around the table, we're able to look back with thankfulness and joy because he used it all. And he kept us from pursuing that hollow satisfaction. And instead, we begin to see the mercy of God in every tragedy, every absurdity, that depending on what we choose to do next, it can serve to either push us closer to him and to helping us to enjoy the present and to long for eternity all the more as we become less and less consumed with this life, with the meaningless life that this world offers, and become consumed with the abundant life of Jesus Christ as we embrace the mercy of God in life's absurdities. Let's pray. Father, this is a message that doesn't offer us an easy question, but it offers us a wonderful answer. And Father, I pray for us in this room this morning that are asking these questions or sensing that emptiness. And maybe this morning we're finally ready to cross over that line of faith, to put our trust into you, and to repent, to give over everything that we've gone and looked for the meaning for of life in something else, in someone else. Lord, if we're at that moment, God, would you help us to call out to you, to confess, to repent, to believe in you. It's the only way of life. Help us to meet us in that place. And if that's you this morning, I encourage you to pray with one of our elders this morning. Draw near, and we will help you with that next step. But God, for the rest of us, as we are reminded of our encouragement here from your word, to pursue in you the only life that will ever matter, to pursue the kingdom that will only uh, be the one that will last in the end, we pray that you would help us to repent, to draw near to you, and to enjoy today all the more as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.